This talk is offered by Ordinary Mind Zendo. Ordinary Mind was founded by Barry Majid, Dharma heir of Charlotte Joko Beck, and is dedicated to her vision of a psychologically minded Zen practice adapted to the needs of American students practicing in the context of their everyday lives. Our public programs are made possible by donations from people like you. As the years go by, there are fewer and fewer of you in the Sangha who had any personal connection uh, with Joko. Few the out-of-towners I know have maintained phone relationships with her in her later years. A few people went out to see her, but it's getting rarer and rarer. that the New York group, at least, has members who uh, knew her personally. Uh, so I was thinking, reflecting on the ways in which our practice has evolved here over the years. And while in most major respects, I'm obviously very much in sync with her way of practicing. Our personalities are different and Zen itself has evolved in America since she began teaching. So I thought I'd say something a little bit about her style of teaching and how some aspects of it are different from what we're, we're doing now. Um, I mean, in one sense, the, it's, you know, anytime old Zen students get together, the easiest thing is for them to all reminisce about how much harder sashins were in the old days. Uh, and it's true. Uh, if you want to get a feel for what a session in San Diego is like uh, if we transposed it to uh, Garrison. Imagine that, uh, first of all, there are no bedrooms. Uh, think that you have the Zendo and the Dokasan room. Uh, at night, all the men sleep together in the uh, Zendo, all the women sleep together in the uh, Dokasan room, just push up put down the zabatons, put down a sleeping bag or a blanket, and uh, you're in there uh, for the week. All meals, there's no dining hall, uh, all the meals are at your cushion. And uh, probably starting sitting at 5 in the morning, going till 10 at night, and there are no chairs. Uh, it was very basic to Joko's style of teaching that uh, you are there to face pain and difficulty. And uh, if you were in physical pain, you were just in physical pain. Uh, and you didn't move. Now there's a lot about that style of teaching that I don't think is sustainable as people age, but it had it created a certain atmosphere. 
probably should also say that those sashins would be for about 40 or 50 people. Uh, Joko was in Dokusan morning till night, never sat with the group in the Zendo, took meals by herself, just came into the Zendo to give a Dharma talk, and then you only saw her again when it was your turn for Dokusan. She could be a uh, intimidating and imposing figure in some ways. There's a side of her that was very warm and caring, but there was also a side that was very tough and no-nonsense. And um, if you went into Dokusan, you should, uh, first of all, imagine over uh, on the wall one of those signs that says, No Whining. Uh, because you could not complain to Joko. <laughs> this was not on the program. Uh, what she expected of you was to use practice in the service of non-avoidance and staying with the emotional realities uh, that you, uh, you typically avoided and the markers of those were fear and anxiety and anger Uh, so something that you didn't like that made you anxious or that got you upset is precisely what you were supposed to practice with there's no sense that oh something was being done wrong that was making you feel bad how can we make you feel better Uh, you're there to face those things way of bringing emotional uh, psychological reality into practice was through this idea of non-avoidance and making practice a constant exercise in overcoming likes and dislikes Uh, the whole idea of Sashin was that you took it whole that there were times in the day that you'd be tired, that you'd be in pain, that you'd be bored, that you'd be in ecstasy, that the person sitting next to you would, uh, his nose would be dribbling or be bothering you. Whatever it was, you just felt your reaction to that. That was the core of her practice. If you would go to her and say, such and such, you know, is making me angry, uh, or so and so looked at me crooked and didn't, you know, answer me uh, when I asked them a question or something like that, her basic attitude was, who are you to feel you should be treated well? world is not here to respond to you to make you feel how you think you should feel. Uh, the, the purpose almost of the Sangha, the relationships in the Sangha is to push your buttons and reveal all your expectations of what you think uh, you're owed and to watch how you react when you don't get it. 
if you feel lonely, if you feel hurt, if you feel anxious, if you feel mad, all those are revealing some basic expectation, some deep entitlement of, the world shouldn't treat me like that, that's not fair. And she would basically say, says who? That was her basic attitude to all of that. Says who? So what? Right? A lot of people, it was pretty, came across as pretty harsh. Um, but over time, it was deeply compassionate because it had a deep acceptance of saying, you just have to stay and hold all of it. Right? And I'll stay there with you. We'll be through this together. Uh, and she sort of had a kind of sense, I've seen it all and we can sit through this together. And she would be very present and very solid. But it was saying, if you feel deep fear, deep pain, the practice is to stay with that. Not, and certainly not... Um, blame another person for doing it to you. That was, that's exactly what you were there to, to work through. Right? No expectations. And the style of practice that that uh, encouraged on a day-to-day basis was a kind of meticulous, almost hyper-vigilant awareness of your own expectations, your own likes and dislikes about how you go through everything during the day saying, well, I like this, but I don't like that. This person really isn't doing what they're supposed to be doing. And uh, this is, you know, know, that endless picking and choosing and labeling of everything that we all do. And her idea of somebody who practiced was just all day you watch how you react with judgment about what's, what you're facing and how people are treating you, right? And that there's no entitlement, no expectation. All you do is you face whatever unpleasantness you, you have to feel. Right? And she would say that, sort of that the, the fruit of that is a kind when you really stop putting these barriers of expectation between you and life and you and other people, there's a great freedom and release and openness because you, that's genuine acceptance. You stop, you've sort of stopped your endless attempts to protest and control, protest and control, and you just take life as it comes, moment after moment. And that was her sense of being just this moment. When we chant uh, each moment, life as it is, the only teacher, that was her sense of it. Life is your teacher moment after moment because it's not going the way you want. And by not going the way you want, it's revealing all your likes and dislikes and all your expectations, and it's there to wear them out. It's sandpaper, right? or a grindstone, or something even harder, right? (laughs) But that's what uh, life as the teacher meant, right? Wear it out.
Now you know that I've, in some sense, I realize I'm caricaturing this. I mean, it, 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 I don't mean to sum up her old teaching in a paragraph or two like this. Uh, but it was a style and a temperament that was different and had uh, its pluses and minuses. In some ways, as you all know me over the years, you're familiar enough in the way I've moved our practice away from that, uh, particularly towards an idea of no gain, because I think the downside of her way of talking about practice was it would it could turn into a kind of endless project uh, in which you're always monitoring yourself, always fixing yourself, always trying to wear out uh, expectation uh, and uh, preference uh, so that um, practice was vigilant and lifelong and you're never there yet, right? That's the downside of it. And when I talk about no gain, it's to create an alternative to to that. And a lot of what we do here is grounded in my own sense that we have to get off the grid of how am I doing, well or badly. And the Zendo is meant to open up a space where we can just be without any sense of how am I doing. That's That's a not an attitude that she would articulate directly, although it was there in her presence when you got to know her after a certain point. But what I think that um, was very positive in her approach, and which I think my approach, in fact, neglects uh, in a way that's not often helpful, is that uh, it really made people pay attention to their expectations uh, and their interpersonal expectations in the, particularly in the Sangha uh, of what they thought other people were for right? uh, how uh, you were treated uh, Sangha was a place of responsibility I remember, yeah, I was mostly there for the long sessions, but even the regular days, people would come in in the early morning sittings and make themselves a cup of tea. Uh, you know, a lot of them would take a cup of tea and then put the dish in the sink, you know, a cup in the sink. So eventually Elizabeth put up a sign over the sink that says, if you don't wash, dry, and put away that cup, who do you think will? Right? Uh, and that was sort of the other side of that attitude of that sangha it was there, everybody was there to to work and maintain the sangha you could not be there sort of as the passive recipient of the, uh, the Zen center, right? come in when you feel like it, have your cup of tea, listen to a talk, go home that was, that was entertaining maybe I'll do it again in a week or two right? <laughs> Couldn't get away with that sort of attitude. Uh, the expectation was, you're here because you sit every day, whether you want to sit every day or not. Uh, you, you're here to 
maintain this practice, support the sannas, sign up to do work. Uh, there's house and grounds and chores. We've got 50 people coming for session. There are 100 things that need to be done. If you think you're a student, which one are you signing up for? Right? Uh, very different sense of participation, responsibility, and commitment. Uh, Joko would not let you get away with the idea that your practice was something that was going on inside your head when you sit on the cushion. Right? Your practice was, what responsibility are you taking for this place? What are you doing here? Right? How are you serving uh, the Sangha? Now, don't tell me what you're getting out of it. What are you putting in? Again, that's an attitude that I think um, we've let slide over uh, the years in New York. Uh, in some sense, because we have a smaller place and we're not, we don't have the same kind of um, requirements for people to do a lot of work to keep the place up and to make the sessions happen. Um, it's easier. We have it easier. Um, But the downside of that, I think, was uh, we'd lose a sense of what Sangha means in terms of uh, mutual commitment and responsibility. So it's good once in a while to remind ourselves, I think, of that um, other way of thinking about what we're doing here. Hers was a, uh, in some ways, a more demanding, less forgiving style of practice. And overall, you know, I like the atmosphere here better. Uh, I tried to set up this place in some ways as correctives to the downsides of the traditional ways of practicing. but we should not lose sight of uh, the virtue of, uh, of that kind of discipline and that kind of uh, commitment. It really still should be uh, central to what we think of as uh, Zen practice and uh, Sangha. <laughs>